welcome to the ESBS podcast. My name is Melina Vega de Cinema. And my name is Liliana Fidalgo Domingo. We present another clinical scenario to explore the current evidence-based best medical treatment. We have previously explored two cases of PAD in early stages with intermittent claudication. Now we will move on to advanced stages of chronic lymph-threatening ischemia. This is a 71-year-old man, obese, former smoker, hypertensive, diabetic, non-insulin dependent, normal cholesterolemic, with atrial fibrillation and a good ventricular function on echocardiogram, and a cardioembolic stroke three years ago with no functional sequela. He complains from long-standing non-disabling 150-meter bilateral symmetric calf claudication and a month of progressive rest pain on his left foot with several small ulcers on his first and third toes and his heel. He has absent femoral, popliteal and distal pulses on his left lower limb and a weak femoral pulse and femoral popliteal occlusion on his right lower limb. His right ABI is 0.4 and left 0.3. On the CT scan, we can see significant stenosis on the left common and external iliac arteries, moderate stenosis of the common femoral artery, patent severe stenosis at the origin of the profunda, and superficial femoral artery occluded at its origin, with recanalization at the distal popliteal artery with anterior tibial and peroneal arteries as runoff. What would be the best baseline medical treatment regimen for this patient according to the most recent evidence before any revascularization plan? And with this, we would also be exploring the medical treatment for CLTI patients who undergo primary amputation or conservative management. What is non-negotiable in this patient profile? For this scenario, we are going to focus mostly on the 2019 Global Vascular Guidelines on the Management of Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia, written jointly by the American Society for Vascular Surgery, the SBS, and the European Society for Vascular Surgery, the ESVS, and the World Federation of Vascular Societies, WFVS. We will complement the recommendations with those of the 2017 ESC Guidelines on the Diagnosis and Treatment of PAD in collaboration with the ESVS, 2019 ESVM guidelines on PAD, and the 2019 ESC guidelines on diabetes, prediabetes, and cardiovascular diseases, and the COMPASS and Voyager randomized clinical trials. Chronic limb-threatening ischemia is an end-stage manifestation of systemic atherosclerosis and is frequently accompanied by clinically significant disease in other cardiovascular beds. So it implies high risk of stroke, myocardial infarction, and death, up to 32% within one year of diagnosis, with up to 25% major amputation. The goal of treatment of patients with CLTI is both to salvage a functional limb and to reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality through aggressive risk factor modification and best medical therapy. In this case, the patient is diabetic and has advanced cardiovascular disease limited to his lower limbs with no significant coronary or carotid artery disease, so he would be classified as very high cardiovascular risk. Again, the baseline treatment for his condition includes aggressive management of his hypertension and diabetes, he no longer smokes and must remain so, antithrombotic treatment, statins, appropriate diet and weight control, regular exercise, which will have to be tailored to his situation after revascularization or amputation or conservative management, and in this case, we will also address pain relief. We will now dig into the recommended pharmacological therapy. Let's start with antithrombotic therapy. 
antiplatelets only, anticoagulation, when one, the other, or both combined. All patients with CLTI should be treated long-term with an antiplatelet agent. This is a strong recommendation based on a high level of evidence. Several meta-analyses have proved reduced cardiovascular events with antiplatelet monotherapy in PAD patients, although most studies have included only or mostly patients with intermittent claudication and not CLTI. Evidence favors clopidogrel as monotherapy over the rest of antiplatelet agents because of slightly increased protection with no significant increase of the bleeding risk and is so reflected in the current guidelines as a weak recommendation based on moderate level of evidence. The long-term use of a double antiplatelet regime or systemic anticoagulation with vitamin K antagonists is not indicated for PAD, but the dual pathway with low-dose aspirin and rivaroxaban 2.5 mg twice daily should be considered to reduce adverse cardiovascular events and lower extremity ischemic events in patients with CLTI, as shown in the COMPASS trial. This strategy is recommended in the latest guidelines as a weak recommendation with moderate level of evidence, just like clopidogrel. However, this patient has chronic atrial fibrillation with a previous embolic event and must be fully anticoagulated because of the arrhythmia and not the vascular disease. This is frequently encountered in vascular patients. The need for combined anticoagulation and antiplatelet treatment as secondary prevention of embolic and atherothrombotic events, prevention that must be balanced with the risk of bleeding of the pharmacological combination. The possibilities in this patient include full-dose vitamin K antagonist or direct oral anticoagulant plus low-dose aspirin, 75 to 150 mg daily. The anticoagulant agent could be combined with clopidogrel, but this would increase the bleeding risk. Remember to adapt the medication to the preoperative preparation with interruption of the oral anticoagulant and clopidogrel if used a few days in advance of the procedure according to local protocols. This baseline medication could be changed postoperatively depending on the revascularization procedure. Endovascular treatment could require short-term double antiplatelet therapy, usually aspirin and clopidogrel, and the dual pathway, low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin, is applicable and recommended in both open and endovascular procedures, as proved in the Voyager trial. However, this patient with atrial fibrillation will still need full anticoagulation, and the combination with a single antiplatelet agent would have the best net clinical benefit profile postoperatively as well. Okay, that is very helpful. What about statins? This patient is normal cholesterolemic. Are they still recommended? Absolutely. Long-term statins are adamant in all patients with PAD, even those with normal baseline cholesterol and LDL levels. Statins have proved to reduce cardiovascular event and death rates by over 15% in several studies, some of which also included patients with CLTI. The target serum cholesterol levels in this high-risk diabetic and vascular patient are LDL below 55 mg per deciliter, and he would be a candidate for moderate or high-intensity statin therapy, that is, 40 to 80 mg of atorvastatin or 20 to 40 mg of rosuvastatin daily. The Jupiter study found a 44% reduction in major vascular events, including a 54% reduction in myocardial infarction, a 48% reduction in stroke, a 46% reduction in arterial revascularization, and a 20% reduction in mortality in patients with low baseline LDL levels but high C-reactive protein levels treated with 20 mg of rosuvastatin versus placebo. In case of muscle aching, the most common adverse effect of statins, the statin can be lowered to the maximum tolerated dose and it can be combined with the CT mind if needed. 
and, if insufficient or not tolerated, the new PCSK9 inhibitors are also recommended. Again, all these recommendations are class 1 with level of evidence A and B for acetamide. Very clear. Additionally, this patient is hypertensive. Yes, and just like we described in our previous podcast scenarios, this is another cardiovascular risk factor that must be controlled as lowering systolic blood pressure reduces cardiovascular events. The target blood pressure in this diabetic patient would be systolic of 130 to 139 millimeters mercury and diastolic of 70 to 80 millimeters mercury, lower for younger patients or those at particularly high risk of cerebrovascular events. In general, it is recommended to start pharmacological treatment with a combination of an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker with a calcium channel blocker or thiazide or thiazide-like diuretic. This patient, P is a real patient, had baseline medication tailored by his cardiologist with a combination of valsartan with verapamil and spironolactone. And he is a type 2 non-insulin dependent diabetic patient. Yes, he definitely needs strict control of this very important cardiovascular risk factor. The extent of vascular disease appears related to the duration and severity of hyperglycemia, and glycemic control is therefore essential in all diabetic patients with PAD. Several oral compounds are recommended as first-line diabetic patients with established cardiovascular disease, empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, niraglutide, simaglutide, dulaglutide. They have proved to reduce the incidence of cardiovascular events and death. Metformin is recommended as first-line in CLTI patients specifically, second-line in patients with intermittent claudication only, as described in our previous podcast. However, caution is advised in the use of canagliflozin in diabetic patients with advanced PAD and or CLTI, as one large trial with over 10,000 patients demonstrated a twofold increased risk of lower limb amputations associated with the use of canagliflozin. Another word of caution. Type 2 diabetic patients with abnormal renal function treated with metformin may be at higher risk for contrast-induced nephropathy and lactic acidosis, so although debatable with low level of evidence, it is weakly recommended in the latest guidelines to withhold metformin for 24 to 48 hours after the administration of an iodinated contrast agent common in the study of patients with CLTI. In general, and in this patient, the hemoglobin A1c target should be under 7%. For elderly patients with limited life expectancy, the target can be more flexible, up to 8%. This patient was taking empagliflozin and had hemoglobin A1c level of 6.3%. You mentioned earlier the need for pain management. Pain is an important issue for most CLTI patients and has a major adverse impact on quality of life and functional capacity. No RCTs have been conducted specifically in CLTI, so good practice recommendations in the latest guidelines have been extrapolated from other conditions and specialties. The management of ischemic pain in CLTI is often complicated by the coexisting neuropathic pain, particularly patients with diabetes. The 2019 CLTI Global Guidelines recommend the use of paracetamol with opioids for pain control, adjusted to the degree of pain and side effects, attending to the need for adjuvant laxatives and anti-nausea medication. Other alternatives, if in effective pain relief, include tricyclic antidepressants, gabapentin and pregabalin, all of which are used effectively for neuropathic pain. If the patient is not eligible for revascularization or amputation, the pain medication regime can be assessed by specific pain management units. What about celostazole or pentoxifilin? Do they have a role in CLTI patients? Celostazole has been well studied in claudicans, but not so much in CLTI. 
One small study demonstrated that silostosol improves microvascular circulation and skin perfusion pressure in ischemic limbs, but there are no RCTs in this population, so not enough evidence to recommend its use in this setting. Pentoxetaline improves blood flow by increasing red blood cell deformity and decreased viscosity. A European RCT with 314 patients found a significant reduction in breast pain, sleep disturbance and analgesia requirements, but in a separate Norwegian study using the same dosage, there was no statistically significant difference in pain-free levels or in absolute walking distance. So there is currently no consistent evidence to recommend its use either in the treatment of CLTI. Vasoactive drugs or defibrinating agents are not recommended in CLTI patients. Prostanoids can be considered selectively for patients with breast pain or minor tissue loss in whom revascularization is not possible. What about exercise and diet? As mentioned in the 2019 CLTA Global Guidelines, although diet and exercise have not been specifically evaluated in CLTI, there is compelling evidence that they affect the progression of atherosclerosis. Patients should be encouraged to adopt a low-fat or Mediterranean diet, low in carbohydrates and saturated fats, high in monounsaturated fats, omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants and plant sterols, which has been associated with a reduction in plaque burden and major adverse cardiovascular events. There are no studies regarding exercise specifically in CLTI patients, but given the proved benefits in patients with milder PAD and cardiac rehabilitation, the guidelines suggest that a post-revascularization walking-based exercise program would likely also benefit CLTI patients who are cleared for full weight bearing. Right then, let's sum up. Best medical treatment for this patient would be anticoagulation with a vitamin K antagonist or direct oral anticoagulant with 100 mg of aspirin once daily, moderate or high-dose statins for a target LDL of under 55 mg deciliter, that is, 40 to 80 mg of atorvastatin or 20 to 40 mg of rasovastatin daily, a hypotensive regime adjusted to his blood pressure levels and directed by his cardiologist, and oral hypoglycemic drugs with close control of blood glucose levels. Smoking would be banned for life and a healthy diet and weight control would be mandatory. The patient will need painkillers during this acute event and once revascularized should take daily exercise as non-negotiable part of his lifestyle readjustment. That's right. The patient underwent iliac stenting, femoral endarterectomy, profundoplasty and femoropopliteal bypass with his saphenous vein. He was discharged with that same pharmacological treatment. That is great. Thank you very much for summarizing the current evidence on this topic. Like I always say, this would be an evidence-based best medical treatment according to what we know today, but evidence is dynamic. Always check out the latest updates of the corresponding clinical practice guidelines. Absolutely. I hope you listeners out there have found this podcast useful. Remember, you can listen all the ESVS podcasts open access in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the ESVS eLibrary and the Vascular Forum webpage. We will be back soon with more clinical scenarios. Have a great week. Bye for now.